August 2000. <laughs> August 2000. Welsh backpacker Kirsty Jones, 23, is found raped and murdered in a small guest house in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Police in Thailand and Wales would spend the next 20 years investigating the case before its statute of limitations ran out and the focus would fall on the other occupants of the guest house. Who killed Kirsty Jones? Primary sources for this episode include Wales Online, The Brecon Radnor, The Guardian, Chiang Mai City Life, The Bangkok Post, The BBC and The Independent. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 103 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I had to film, I had to record the start bit a couple of times because when I started talking the first time, Cinnamon did a little blip. So I've left that in at the end because it was really cute because every time you kind of quiet and you start talking, Cinnamon never really talks like Yoko does, but she sounds like a little lamb when she, you know, says hello. So she ran in thinking I was talking to her, but I was not. So I hope you guys are doing well. I don't have a whole lot to talk about. It's a beautiful day here in Melbourne. We've had a couple of really beautiful sunny days. I think anyone with an actual winter would laugh at what our winters are. Like it's like 18 degrees today and people are in like puffer jackets. I've never really understood it because I've never really been cold in winter. Unfortunately, I'm never cold, which sucks. Um, I don't have much else to talk about. Probably next week or the next episode, I will do the profile I'm going to do. I haven't decided yet. It's either the next episode or the one after that. Um, I keep putting it off, but we haven't had a profile since Alexei Navalny. And I like to cover people who um, have died overseas, I guess. Um, so I've got quite a list of people to do profiles on. If you guys know anyone that you want to cover like their story for a profile, like send it through. We've done uh, Heath Ledger, we've done, oh, I mean, we've done Julian Assange in terms of a locked up abroad, that kind of thing. Alexei Navalny, I can't think, I haven't done a female so far and the next one won't be a female either. Um, so yeah, well, I'm going to get straight into it because this case has been on my mind and this afternoon I went for a walk and I was just, I almost got hit by a car because I was trying to piece together this whole thing in my head and trying to figure out what the hell went on. Um, or why I'd never heard of this case. But then again, when this happened, I was 13, so I probably wasn't focused on this. Um, but I've had Kirsty Jones's case on my big spreadsheet to do for quite a while. But patron Sarah from Dublin, when it was her turn to choose a location for an upcoming episode, which this one is, she requested Thailand, which we've been to a couple of times. Can't think of who... I can think of Danny Hall off the top of my head, um, who we've gone to Thailand for. You've got to kind of stick with me because now I'm getting into the hundreds of episodes. I remember everybody, but it's a kind of like I've got to think back to exactly what happened where. Um, so we've been here a couple of times. Danny Hall's case, he was a British traveller who went missing on the island of Koh Penang in South Thailand. Um, so this one is actually going to take us to a city that I absolutely love, that I would very easily move to and that a lot of expats move to in the north of Thailand called Chiang Mai. 
Now, patron Sarah, when you become a patron, you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode. Bear with me because I currently have, I think, 11 on my list of things to do. And in between those, I need to add my own cases in that I want to cover. But Sarah requested Thailand. So then I go to my spreadsheet and I look in alphabetical order through my solved tab, my unsolved tab, my locked up abroad tab, my profiles tab. And I find a case based on that. And my spreadsheet is massive. Um, it's hundreds and hundreds of cases. So basically when Sarah requested Thailand, I believe she hasn't been there, but it is on her bucket list and you have to go. It is truly incredible. And one day I will end up living there. Um, I went onto my spreadsheet and I decided to finally do the case of Kirsty Jones. Now, Kirsty, Kirsty's case got a lot of attention about 20 years ago um, when this happened. The, you know, from August to the end of 2000, it was a media circus because, you know, a Western traveller had been killed in a place that so many go to and it really rarely happens. Um, so they all kind of flocked to Chiang Mai and, you know, tried to get the scoop on this. Um, unfortunately, it does seem that the police and the Western media really expected it to be an open and shut case because there's articles from like the day after Kirsty died that say they expect to make a arrest within a week. Unfortunately, 21 years on in eight days from when I'm recording this, um, it's 21 years and there has been no arrest and technically it is unsolved. And in my belief, it should have been solved extremely quickly. So I want to give a quick shout out to a publication called Chiang Mai City Life. Now, this person who wrote it, it's a woman who was on the ground at the time. They used her because she spoke English and Thai. So she worked as a translator. In 2012, she wrote down all her she kind of did like a brain dump of everything she remembers from covering the Kirsty Jones case and helping on it because she was right there on the ground, on the scene, hours after it happened. Her name is Pim Kang, sorry, Kemasingi. So when I quote Pim's articles from Chiang Mai City Life, I will simply state according to Pim, so you'll know who it is. She wrote a multi-part series, I believe it's five parts, I've read all of them, um, about kind of the broken up into segments. So the initial kind of case and on the scene and then things that went on and her, um, her kind of opinion of the police, the Thai police and things like that. Um, Pim, if you're out there, thank you so much for your amazing publication. Um, because not only were you the only person on the ground who continued to report on this years after the fact, you really, really gave a shit about Kirsty Jones. And I think you really still do. Um, Kirsty's case in a funny way kind of reminds me of the game Clue. We're all in a building. There is a range of suspects. Um, obviously it's going to be one of these, at least I think most people would assume that when we get into the case. And each person is in a different room, has a different backstory, has a different reason why they could have done it. Um, it's a very, it's the kind of crux of a whodunit. Um, so I believe the case should have been solved. And honestly, if there's some expat or who's living in Chiang Mai, or there's a journalist who's based in Chiang Mai, and you're looking for a story that hasn't been covered, 
do one on Kirsty Jones um, because it would make an incredible multiple podcast series or book um, to get it all down from beginning to end um, because there's just not enough info on certain things um, and I think someone needs to kind of take it under their wing and, you know, make something of this story. And unfortunately, the statute of limitations, because there is one for murder in Thailand, unbelievably, um, it expired last year. So even if they found the person, this person still cannot be charged anymore because it was 20 years, um, the statute of limitations. That's their law and that's the way they do it. So even if you found the person who was responsible, not that they would be able to be charged in Thailand, and I don't think there's any laws that mean they could be charged in Kirsty's home, you know, home country of Wales or in the UK. To out the person who did it, I think at this point would be enough um, for her family. So let's talk about the case of Kirsty Jones. Kirsty Sarah Jones was a Welsh backpacker who was traveling the world and currently in Southeast Asia in Thailand when she was raped and murdered in the city of Chiang Mai on August the 10th, 2000. Now, I often think of things as pre-9-11 and post-9-11 in terms of where people's focus was. And I think it's important to note that Kirsty was killed pretty much exactly a month before September 11. So when you see the news drop off in certain cases, especially like this, you'll realise that so much of the world's attention was on terrorism and things like that. And I tend to notice that in articles about Kirsty that it drops off around that time. She was 23 when she was murdered and in just a week or so it will mark 21 years since Kirsty's violent murder and she would have been, you know, 44. I believe she was born in 1977 but there's no note of her birthday or the year she was born um, but she was 23. Now, as I said, it is important to note that the statute of limitations that exists in Thailand for murder um, is 20 years and that expired on August the 10th, 2020. So really all they can hope for is to out the person, but there'll be no criminal charges in Thailand, which really sucks. In most countries, there's no statute of limitations on murder. Now, the case got into a lot of international headlines and Kirsty kind of in the year 2000 was a bit like, you know, the Natalie Holloway of that time, I guess. Kirsty Jones was an impressive young woman. She was much like many of the people that we have covered on this travel true crime podcast, as I've kind of coined the niche, I guess. She was bright, she was independent, and she was interested in the world around her. Kirsty hailed from a town called Trebon, sorry, Tredomen. I'm not very good with Welsh, but it's near the town of Brecon. That's how you pronounce it. I've looked it up. I believe that's right. Sorry if you're Welsh and it's not. Brecon is a small town of only 5,000 these days. So this area where Kirsty was from in Wales is just an hour or so north of the capital, Cardiff. It's about three and a half hours drive to London. Kirsty has a vibe about her physically that's a lot like Odette Hofton who we covered a few episodes ago, who went missing in India. Um, she's got the kind of ring, nose ring, um, blonde, you know, kind of, she looks different in all of the pictures actually, but the one that I chose to make the episode picture, which comes up on Spotify, I really liked that one. She looks like, you know, a little hippie. I don't think she was particularly tall. Um, she looks different in all of them and there's quite a lot of pictures of Kirsty. So I will put them on the website and also in the Patreon, but She's got kind of a warm, 
um, hippie vibe to her where I think Thailand and traveling around, you know, being a free spirit would really suit her. I think maybe the fact that she loved travel so much, you know, maybe because she came from such a small town, the world around people like that seems so huge and you want to get out there and experience it. Her mum is Sue, um, who still comments on the case from time to time and has really been the most vocal about getting answers for her daughter. And at the time of Kirsty's death, she said that her daughter had, quote, the world at her feet. Her dad was a farmer in this part of Wales and he, his name is Glyn, G-L-Y-N. Now, I, I think she had siblings, but I don't know their names and they're not quoted in any articles. Now, her small town upbringing may have contributed to Kirsty's desire to want to get out and explore the world. Kirsty wouldn't know that the regional police in her part of Wales would actually end up playing a key part in trying to get answers as to who killed, you know, this young woman who came from their jurisdiction. And they did do a lot to try to get answers from, you know, across the world. The first time Kirsty went overseas, it was in 1996 um, and she was about 19 and she set off for Australia, where I'm from, and she stopped off in Thailand on her way home because if you fly to Australia, Thailand's kind of often, you know, a halfway point. If you're flying, you know, certain airlines, they'll stop off in Bangkok or usually in Southeast Asia somewhere. So a lot of people have stopovers um, and it's about nine hours from where I live in Thai in Melbourne, sorry. After a safe trip where nothing, you know, happened, she really wanted to get back to Southeast Asia. She loved it and I can relate. Um, she was a top student, but she'd fallen in love with travelling. So when she returned after her initial trip to Australia and Thailand, she completed a degree at Liverpool University, um, which is in the city of Liverpool. I have a friend that goes there. She completed her degree in English and media studies in 1999. I don't know what she intended on doing, but she really, after she did her degree, she did what I did. She worked odd jobs to fund her next big traveling trip. She had planned ultimately a two-year trip around the world and put away as much money as she could. And this was going to include parts of Asia, including Southeast Asia. She was going to go back to Australia. She was going to go to New Zealand and her trip was going to finish in South America. And then she was going to return home. This time, her family were not worried. She'd traveled alone before. She was 20, you know, 23 years old. She was independent, responsible. And, you know, all the places that she was going to, nothing really happens to people. You're usually always around backpackers in hostels and things like that. Um, and you're generally safe. And she was going to keep in touch. But bear in mind, this is before social media and mobiles and things like that. So in May 2000, Kirsty set off from her home in Brecon. Um, and she went to Asia first and she was only about two months into her around the world trip that was planned for two years when she was murdered, which is so unfortunate, all the different experiences she could have had, you know, and what could have ultimately she could have done with her life. So she visited Singapore and Malaysia first, and then she traveled on to Chiang Mai. And she arrived there, I believe, in early August 2000. She'd only been there for a week or two when she was ultimately murdered. 
she checked into a very small guest house. It it's apparently was tiny. It doesn't exist anymore. So this guest house is a central figure in this whole thing. And it was called the RE guest house, A-R-E-E guest house. One of the city's many. If you've been to these parts of the world, every second building is a guest house and you can get a room for next to nothing in a lot of these places. When Kirsty went, it was a lot cheaper. That's why she could go for such a long time. She could get a single room with the bare minimum, just a bed in which Kirsty got at this RE guest house for one pound a night, which is what it was back then. But even when I went to Cambodia the first time in around 2010, about 10 years after Kirsty was murdered, you could get a dorm bed for about a dollar US a night. So every second building is a guest house. Some of them are better than others. Some of them have more facilities and amenities, but generally, you know, you can get one for these days, you know, 20 bucks a night maybe, and they've got next to nothing, but it doesn't really matter because you're going to spend most of your time outside of your room anyway. It's just a place to sleep, but bear in mind, Kirsty had her own single room and she was in it on her own. So now I'm going to talk a bit about Chiang Mai to open it up. So there was a great Guardian article from August 2000, a guy called Luke Harding, who was the Asian correspondent, traveled to Chiang Mai when this happened and wrote this article about a week after Kirsty died. And this is what he wrote about Chiang Mai, quote, life in Chiang Mai is easy, cheap, undemanding, seductive. The narrow lanes in downtown Chiang Mai, which boast internet cafes, food stalls, Bars and secondhand bookshops are virtually deserted until 11am. Everyone is still in bed, sleeping off the night before. There are other reasons too. Drugs are plentiful here. You can get almost anything you want, one French backpacker who did not want to be named said yesterday. You can get heroin, cannabis, anything. Following Thailand's economic collapse three years ago, money earned in jobs back at home stretches a long way. The RE, one of the grottier guest houses in town, charges 60 baht or one pound a night for a single room. For two pound, you can get somewhere quite decent. A Thai meal with beer and a view of the river costs around three pound a head. And it is not just the young who come. Every day, more coaches arrive carrying parties of elderly Italian or Australian tourists wearing shorts, unquote. So I've been to Chiang Mai. It's not on the coast. It's kind of up right kind of near the border with Burma. It's beautiful. I spent about a week there. It's a riverside city. It's very big. It's the most popular city in Thailand for expats to move to. They've got a huge international community, expat community. There's a night bazaar. There's the walking street, which was about five minutes walk from where Kirsty was living. And this part of Thailand also has the hill tribes, um, which Kirsty had gone to visit, and I did a trip up to them, which I have a whole other story about that. Um, I went to like a butterfly sanctuary, and I also went to an elephant rescue. Um, so it's very, it's very lush, green, um, right outside of the city. You can trek up into the mountains. You can do all kinds of things. And I believe it's about 400 kilometers north of Bangkok. I flew, so it's about an hour's flight. So the RE guest house, which no longer exists because I've tried to find it, but if you know these areas, they constantly change hands, change names, um, you know, it's always constantly changing. But it was on a road called Moon Mwang Road in Soi Nine, which is the district. I've looked that up and every pretty much every single building is a guest house on this road. It's a very kind of buzzing central street that's about five minutes walk from the main walking street. 
where, you know, they have the night bazaar and all of that stuff. There's always people out and about. It's always busy. Even at one o'clock in the morning, which was around the time that Kirsty was murdered, there would have been people out and about walking past this building. I don't know exactly how many rooms it had, but Pim writes that it was like this, the RE, quote, a small two-story wooden house with a shady garden next to an open-air bar, lounge and pool room. RE was a typical backpacker's guest house, unquote. And it was really busy. There was always people there staying there. But I want you to keep in mind that it's literally like a two-story wooden house that's been converted into a guest house. So everyone's rooms are very close together and everyone's living very close together. So when I get into it, you'll kind of start to question some things. So when Kirsty arrived into Chiang Mai, she did what most tourists do. She spent tons of time in the city. She went trekking into the mountains, which is a very popular thing to do in this region. She went sightseeing and she was just meeting new people. You know, as I've said a million times before on this podcast, every second, you know, person you talk to, it ends up being this hours long um, conversation about where they've been, what they're doing. And everyone's kind of in a similar mindset. But also, you don't think about the people and their backstories and why they're there. You often think people are just there traveling and just chilling out. But when we get into the different suspects in this case and people who were staying in the guest house, it kind of started to make me question, you know, how many people I've rubbed shoulders with traveling who were there because they were up to dodgy things. But as Luke Harding wrote for The Guardian, this is the Golden Triangle and you can get drugs <laughs> so easily in this part of the world. So now let's get into the murder of Kirsty Jones. So on the night of the 9th of August 2000, um, Kirsty spent the night with friends. That's all that any publication ever says. It says that she had dinner and spent the evening with friends. I don't know if those were people as in like just random people she'd met, you know, while she was out and about, probably. That's what I presume. I don't know if it was people that she knew from Wales that were there for a time. I really kind of just think it was probably just people she'd met on the trips that she'd taken, um, trekking into the mountains, things like that. She probably met people along the way who ultimately she was going to cross paths with later on in Chiang Mai anyway. But I do kind of think that these people weren't staying at the guest house. They're just separate and they've never been named because they're not related to her murder and they're not suspects. So after enjoying this evening with friends in the early hour, early hours of the 10th of August, Kirsty was in her room at around 1am. Um, I don't know if she was asleep when this happened, but she was attacked and she was raped and murdered in her single room at the RE guest house around 1am in the early morning hours of the 10th of August. Other residents in the guest house had heard screams um, around that time, but they did not investigate. So I will be getting into some specific people who were in the guest house who became suspects, um, but I'll be getting into that in a minute. So the reason that we know she was screaming out is because there was a fellow backpacker who was staying at the guest house called Stephen Trigg. He heard her screaming from her room, quote, leave me alone, leave me alone, get off me, get off me. And that was around 1am in the early morning hours of the 10th of August. So he and the manager of the guest house, who was a little Thai man, and they call him diminutive, that's why I'm saying it, his name is Surin, I'll be getting into quite a lot about him, 
They both ended up walking downstairs from their rooms to investigate, um, but they decided not to open Kirsty's door to see what was happening because they thought that she was in a fight with someone, a lover's tiff, which kind of indicates to me that they didn't know a lot about her because she was travelling on her own. And if they'd spent two minutes talking to her, they probably would have known that. And I'm sure, you know, if they're innocent... um, because I really don't know who's responsible for this. Um, I'm sure that they regretted not opening the door. But if you're ever in that instance, just open the door. It's very similar to the Narumi case, the young Japanese girl who um, was on exchange in that French city of Besançon. Um, If you guys have listened to that case, people heard her screaming and didn't investigate. Don't be polite. Just go and investigate, especially when it's a young girl who is screaming. So then they went back to sleep, if you believe their stories, and the following day, her body was found in the afternoon. And this would trigger a worldwide investigation that would span 20 years and two continents. Kirsty had been raped, and then she had been strangled to death with a sarong that she owned. Everyone in these parts of the world, when they're traveling, they wear sarongs and things like that because it's hot. And somebody had used a sarong that she had owned to strangle her to death, to tie it around her neck. Now, in the Guardian article from Luke Harding in 2000, this is never mentioned anywhere else, not even in Pim's things. And I find this incredibly important. And it was one tiny line where I went, what? When I saw it, and it's never mentioned again. So I often refer to articles from around that time because you get the most kind of right information I find before time and memories kind of start to distort. So this was written like a few days after Kirsty's death and it said, quote, staff became suspicious the next morning when they found the room padlocked, sorry, when they found the room locked with a padlock on the outside, right? So who the fuck would do that? You'd think it would be staff or it would be someone with a padlock. And why would the person padlock it? Would it be to stop her from being found soon? Who has a padlock on them that's travelling? And I answer this, a lot of people, because a lot of people padlocks their bags shut. But I thought that was a very interesting little tidbit that's never brought up again. And I think it's very important. So according to Pim, quote, the evening news that night showed the rescue team responding to requests from cameramen to turn her head from side to side for a good shot. This was Kirsty, by the way. A cameraman opened Kirsty's toiletry bag and pulled out condoms ubiquitous travel accessories for any sensible backpacker, to hold up, tut-tutting in judgment. Reporters rifled through her clothes, some even touching the bed sheets, which were later used to extract DNA. The crime scene was contaminated within seconds and no one, including the police, seemed to have the slight, sorry, seemed to have been the slightest bit concerned, unquote. So, Immediately, they're fucked to the crime scene and they're judging her, which will be a common thread. The condoms, later on, he'll say things about Kirsty being loose, um, one of the head police officers. Pretty much from the get-go, this case is fucked um, with the Thai police. There's a lot of judgment because they're very conservative. This was also 2000 and Thailand was very behind in terms of forensics from the rest of the world. Um, And the, the crime scene wasn't secured. Everyone just walked in, touched everything. Kirsty would have DNA extracted from inside her, from the bed sheets and from the sarong later on. And I want you to keep that in mind. But already Pim is saying she was right there watching this all happening and realising what the fuck they were just like contaminating it. Now, I don't think that they necessarily meant they meant harm. 
in this whole case, I always kind of err on the side of people being stupid as opposed to like evil. Um, but I think just Thailand forensics and things weren't up to snuff and this wouldn't have happened in a lot of like Western places. But already the judgment with the condoms, which come on guys, she was fucking being safe. Like, can we not? Um, it's, they're kind of already judging her. Oh, look, a Western tourist, you know, fucking anything that moves on her holidays. And I already kind of know the mentality of these people. So Pim went on, quote, the chief of police for the municipality joined in the fray. And even before the autopsy results were released, they, he claimed that Kirsty was enjoying consensual sex with a man when it got out of hand. It was an accident, he said. His statement was published in over 20 newspapers around the world and within 24 hours, he was relocated to Isan. So the chief of police immediately puts it down to sex, rough sex gone wrong, which is something that we've seen a million times in cases and it's obviously bullshit. Even if it was, it doesn't mean you can't find the person that did it and that it was an accident. It could have been intentional. Um, but very quickly they relocated him to another part of Thailand because they realised that he'd fucked up. But once you've got all of this bullshit information out there that is wrong across the world, there's really no coming back from it. So already there's the judgement of that. That. There's what they think is happening within hours of it. And this is coming from the chief of police. If you can't trust him to look at it very objectively, who else are you going to trust? But as I kind of researched this, instantly I just felt so sorry for Kirsty and her family that this she was just manhandled by cameramen when she was dead on the ground. They let all of the journalists in and they were grabbing her head and moving her head from side to side. Now, I have not found those pictures nor do I want to find those pictures. Now, now is the point where I'm going to get into some of the primary suspects. Initially, there were eight men that police suspected. Six of them were foreigners who were in the guest house. Now, ultimately, the foreigners would be struck off by DNA evidence because DNA would come back that it was a Southeast Asian male. Um, but this is where I'm going to kind of side with one of the police officers that Pim doesn't agree with. To me, that doesn't necessarily mean that someone wasn't involved in it. Just because the DNA evidence is someone who actually is Asian, who actually raped her because it was found like inside her. And that DNA was also found on the sarong around her neck. But I also want you to keep in mind how contaminated the crime scene was initially. And really, to me, it's I just throw out the DNA because of how contaminated it was. I, I honestly don't trust it. Um but it doesn't necessarily mean that two men weren't working in tandem together. But DNA shows that it was, at least one of them was an Asian male and there didn't seem to be any other DNA testing. Now, I still want you to keep in mind that Thailand had very, very basic DNA, if any, at the time. That's why the Welsh police initially ultimately got involved like a decade later and wanted to retest everything because this is a country that's like a developing country. DNA evidence and forensics is not on their, the top of their list of things to do. So these are the main suspects that come up again and again, and they're very central figures in this whole case. The first one is a man named Andrew Gill. Now, I believe that he is British. He owned the RE guest house, and he was arrested two days after Kirsty's murder because when her body was discovered, 
he was nowhere to be found. He had fled and when they caught up with him, they realised that he had actually overstayed his visa by two years. Now, I find this very, very important because this is a common thing that happens. We talked about this on the um, John Bothmer and Mushfiq Williams episode, Overstayers of Visas. This is a very common thing. And he said that he fled when Kirsty's body was found because he had overstayed the visa and he didn't want them finding out about him. So he left in order to not be found. Now, I do believe this um, because I've met a lot of people who overstayed visas and they don't want to be associated with police. They don't want to have run-ins. They don't report things being stolen. They just kind of stay off the grid. He had overstayed by two years, which means that they'll just deport you. And he was running and owning, he owned the guest house at the time. So all of his money was in this guest house. And if he was caught, he would have been turfed out which is ultimately what happened anyway, and he would have lost everything. So when I look at it like that, I I do kind of believe his story. Now, according to Pim, she said that people, when she had spoken to them on the scene, they referred to Andrew Gill as, quote, a violent drunk, unquote. Whether or not that plays into what happened or anything, but I, I do think that Andrew, again, that's hearsay as well, but Andrew and people like him don't want to bring attention on themselves. And to me, I find it very hard to think that he would kill a girl in his own guest house that he owns because he would know that the police would ultimately end up coming and he would be found out. And that's not something that you want when you own a guest house and you're a long-term visa overstayer. Now, I have... If you know anything about Thai law or anything like that, it's quite hard to own business there. You generally have to be married um, to a Thai woman or a Thai man. And ultimately, they if you divorce, they end up with the property. It's very strict. So I'm not actually sure how Andrew Gill acquired it because Pim refers to his girlfriend, but they don't refer to a wife or anything like that. So whether it was a dodgy dealing, um, I just don't know. So the next person who was in the guest house who they did suspect um, was the manager. So Andrew Gill is the owner, but he hired a Thai man called Surin Chanpranay. He was in his 30s from what I can tell, and they refer to him as diminutive, so quite small because the Thais are pretty small people. He managed the day-to-day operations of the guest house. He also ran a massage school that was upstairs, which is a common thing you find in Thailand. Everyone's a masseuse. Um, It was in the upstairs part of the compound um, and there was a staircase that went up and he also lived upstairs with his wife. According to Pim, he had a drug history and, quote, was found to have amphetamines and marijuana in his room, as well as a dodgy looking postcard of a naked foreign woman tied up in bondage, unquote. So he's got drugs in his room when the police arrive and that's something to keep in mind. Now, his alibi for the night was his wife, Panthapa. Now, Pim refers to her as having a brain injury. It's not, it's just a bit of a lost in translation moment. She has like mental illness. She's not got an acquired brain injury or anything. Now, she says she was in their room all night um, in their second floor apartment that they had and that he went downstairs when he heard the noise coming from Kirsty's room. Um, and that is where he ran into Steve, Stephen Trigg, who I talked about earlier, who also, you know, had come out of his room and they were both kind of standing there. And then apparently Surin told Stephen to go back to his room. Now, the next one after that is a man with a name way too similar to my dad's for my liking, but my dad was not in Thailand, um, called Glenn Lister. Now, he, I believe, was American. 
Um, they've never really said, but he's an ex-Mormon and he kind of used to spout off and kind of acted very strange. Um, according to Pim, he would talk about how he was a former CIA spy um, and he had come to Thailand to recover from head injuries suffered in a car accident. Pim referred to him as unbalanced, unquote, and he was in another room in the guest house. Keep in mind, all of these rooms are very close to each other because it's only a small wooden house with two floors. The next man in the guest house and we know it's a man who did this, so we have to go into the men in the guest house, was a man called Nathan Foley. I believe he was English but living in Australia at the time when he was travelling in Thailand. He was 27 at the time. He had had dinner along with, you know, um, Kirsty and her friends the night of her murder. So, again, she just met people and you go out for dinner, this happens. Um, and he was initially interviewed by police like the other men for 13 hours. They were actually kept and arrested, like kept in custody for quite a long time, all of these men. He was on his way to Austra from Australia to England to visit his relatives and um, he stopped off in Thailand, you know, as a stopover halfway. And he only knew Kirsty, obviously, from meeting her at the guest house and going out for dinner with her the night of the murder. I don't know if he came out of his room. He's never mentioned. The next one was an Australian called Stuart Crichton. He was another guest in the guest house and he was a known heroin addict, according to Pim. And Pim met all of these people and saw them all like immediately hours after the murder at the guest house. Then we have Stephen Trigg, who I talked about earlier, who came out of his room um, because he heard Kirsty screaming and I believe Surin, the Thai manager, told him to go back to his room. Stephen Trigg was 27. He was a British backpacker. He'd been travelling around the world for four years. Um, apparently it was him who heard Kirsty scream, quote, leave me alone, leave me alone, get off me, get off me. Now, he was struck off the suspect list as you know, all of these men were, including Surin, because they took all of their DNA and tested it against the DNA they had. But bear in mind, it was already a contaminated crime scene. They got DNA that was a Thai man's, but it was taken off the bed sheets. Now, you've got people who work in these guest houses coming and going and cleaners all the time changing. I just don't trust that DNA at all. So to me, these people are still all on the list. Now, Stephen, Stuart and Glenn were all long-term residents of the RE guest house. They'd been there for a number of months, which happens. People stay, you know, long-term. I was in a hostel in Scotland where a guy had been there for a year. So a week and a half after the murder of Kirsty Jones, the police chief that was overseeing the investigation specifically confirmed that by this point, all of the foreigners that I mentioned before had been cleared by DNA tests. So all the men in the guest house, the DNA was of an Asian male, Southeast Asian male, but Surin, his DNA was tested and it was not matched against that. Now, the Thai police are notoriously corrupt. You can generally buy your way out of things. So I want you to keep all of this in mind. In my head, they could have known someone else entirely who they didn't put on the list because they knew them through someone. And that's just what I know from how corrupt they are in this part of the world because they don't earn much money. Now, The Guardian reported a week after Kirsty's death this, quote, the imbroglio yesterday became murkier still when it emerged that a Thai maid who initially told police she had found Kirsty's body at 4pm last Thursday admitted to detectives she had been lying. She had been lent upon to give a false statement, she said. Police now believe the manager, Mr Chan Pranay, made the discovery five hours earlier. 
Either way, it is clear that some of the residents at the guest house secretly knew of Kirsty's death several hours before police were informed. What is not clear is why there was a delay in reporting her murder. The delay could merely have been the result of panic among staff at the guest house who realised the gravity of the situation and the trouble they were in. Or it could have been part of a wider and darker conspiracy to try and cover up Kirsty's death and remove traces of evidence. By the time the police arrived on the scene, several people had already been inside her room, including an entire Thai television camera crew. Police Colonel Prasit Thamdi, who was leading the murder inquiry, yesterday said he was sure one of the eight suspects killed her. She knew her killer, he added. Each of the suspects denies involvement in the murder. Unquote. Now, yes. So the time aide initially told police when Kirsty's body was discovered that she'd found her at 4pm on August 10th, 2000. But she ultimately came out and said, no, I was lying. And that basically Surin Chan Pranay and Andrew Gill, so the owner and the manager, had told her to say that she found her at 4 but it was actually she found her at around 10.30am when she entered her room, you know, to do housekeeping, which they do. Pim wrote that the maid told her, quote, Surin Champernay and Andrew Gill told her to shut up while they dealt with some issues, unquote. And that is why she lied. Now, I just want you to go back to what Andrew would have to hide. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a massive conspiracy because everyone killed Kirsty. Andrew was overstaying his visa by a long time. His whole life was in this guest house. And if the police came, he would be uncovered. So that kind of explains to me one of the reasons why he would be kind of buying time in order to piss off for a bit while the police came and investigated it. But ultimately they would catch up with him because they asked where the owner was and he was gone. Surin Champernay also had reasons to want to buy time. He had drugs in his apartment and drugs are a death penalty offence in Thailand. So it could be that he wanted to cover up the drugs, which is something that Pim floats as well. But if you're into a conspiracy, a big one, it could be because someone had done something and everyone else knew and they were covering up for each other. Now, the pathologist would ultimately confirm that the rape and rapist and murderer of Kirsty were one and the same, and they would use DNA evidence from the sarong to figure this out, and not the DNA evidence from inside Kirsty, which is unbelievable to me because anyone could have touched the sarong. That DNA evidence on the sarong could be the person who sold it to her on a market stall. This is what I have such an issue with, and I understand why Kirsty's family are just like, what the fuck? why people who were involved in this called the whole thing a shambolic investigation um, and why they're angry that they didn't get the answers in the 20 years that they had to get the answers where it's so obvious. So let's talk a little bit more about the investigation. Now, Pim had a lot of inside information because she was a translator, obviously, on the scene. And this is all information that's not anywhere else. And that's why it's so important to read her five-part um, thing on Chiang Mai City Life about the murder of Kirsty. So Pim was connected with a trekking guide through people that she knew about a week or so after the murder of Kirsty. Now, this trekking guide had led a Karen Hill tribe tour, which I've been on. It's the Hill tribes with the rings around their necks. You go up and you meet them and they try to sell you stuff. Kirsty had done this just days before her death, and the guy who led the tour was a local from Chiang Mai called Narong. Now, P 
Pim was ultimately set up with him by a woman called Lek, who when I saw her name, I could not believe that I was reading it in this article because I know who Lek is because she runs an amazing elephant sanctuary that I regularly give money to in Chiang Mai. (laughs) Um, And I follow her on Facebook. And I was like, oh my God. So somehow Pim knew Lek and Lek knew Narong. And Lek was like, you have to meet this guy and hear his story about what has just happened to him. So Pim was set up with this Narong guy and he told her a story that happened to him the previous evening from when she was meeting him. Um, This was probably about, I think, a week or two after Kirsty's death. And I'm going to read you the whole thing from what Pim wrote. Quote, Narong had been walking along a roadside the evening before when a van pulled up to him and a handful of men in plain clothes grabbed him, blindfolded him, pushed him down on the floor and made him drink some water. The water was obviously spiked as he then recalls waking up in what looked like a cheap motel room. Over the next few hours, Narong was tortured by men he could only assume were the police. He was threatened with summary execution. He was told that since he was the... He was the... Sorry, he was told that since he was only a hill tribe and not a real Thai citizen, that he should confess to the murder of Kirsty Jones and help the country. He was beaten up, stripped naked, and had these men stand on his chest, forcing him to confess. He showed us his bruises, though thankfully um, not his privates, though there was a moment when I thought he was about to. And there was no doubt that this man had been through physical hell in the last 24 hours. His skinny torso, a Rothko of bruised colours blending with one another. The men then plucked some of his pubic hair, using a lighter to burn off some more and told him to masturbate. When Narong refused to do so, one of the men attempted to masturbate him, but with such an unwilling participant, they soon gave up. Narong told us that he drew from his belief to pull through, that he knew he had done nothing wrong and that God would protect him. Eventually, he passed out and found himself awake sometime at night being held in an outlying police station of Chiang Mai. No one could explain to him why he ended up there and he eventually made his way home, unquote. So, Narong is part of the hill tribes, which under Thai law, they're not actually considered Thai citizens, even though they're in Thailand. And this had happened to him. Now, why would they, these random men be taking him somewhere and trying to get hair samples and semen from him? How does this tie in with everything, including the sarong and the DNA evidence and the issues that the Thai police were having with matching someone to the DNA, right? So Pim explained it. Quote, while DNA was found in Kirsty's body, it was the DNA evidence on the sarong used to strangle her, which would had been the one referenced for testing. I assume that Narong's forced sperm donation was supposed to have been planted onto the sarong, perhaps along with the actual killer's DNA. The police could then push, one of many, the theory of two murderers. Though I don't know how they reckon they could explain the DNA lodged in her body not belonging to Narong. By this time, Dr. Tanin from the forensics department was getting testy with the police, who, he told me, were trying to get him to force his facts onto, well, their fiction. Part of it was their insistence that the DNA found in Kirsty's body was planted there, when he repeatedly insisted that it was impossible and that it was lodged there perimortal. Although, he said, that at least he was grateful that they had finally and reluctantly accepted that the DNA belonged to an Asian man, male. 
unquote. So the police were really pissed when they found out it was an Asian male. They repeatedly kept trying to DNA test white people and um, they were told, no, no, this is science. It's an Asian man who has done this. But they didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to know that it was a Thai person or someone from Southeast Asia who would have done this. So they kept bringing in connections from Andrew Gill and other, you know, French backpackers, things like that, who had been at the guest house like once, two months before and DNA testing them. And this is why the pathologist was getting so pissed off with them because they just wouldn't accept the reality that A, it was an Asian male's sperm and B, that what was inside Kirsty, without being too graphic, couldn't have been planted there by someone. It was someone who raped her and then killed her. So basically Narong's story, and I do believe Pim's theory about what happened to Narong, I believe that they were trying to plant, they were trying to figure out one person who was connected to Kirsty in the week that she'd been in Chiang Mai, and then they were going to pin it on her. So I reckon that in a really fucked way, the police kidnapping Narong and trying to wank him off was a really backward way of them trying to pin it on someone because they wanted to close the case. They wanted it to be done. Um, and if they were going to plant it on an Asian male, they were going to plant it on someone they saw as lesser than, and that's someone from the Karen Hill tribes. Speaking of Asian males, Pim goes on, quote, initially happy to receive all the media attention and ingratiating himself with the police. The loquacious Surin, so the manager, was a great source of many early news piece quotes, though his web of lies soon revealed his lack of practice in deceit. His stories ranged from the occult, Kirsty's spirit featured regularly in his drunken ramblings, to an outrageous account he gave about five weeks after the murder that he actually saw through twitching curtains Andy Gill having sex with Kirsty, or at least, he amended, he saw him leaving her room. By this point, the man had cried wolf so often, even the sheep weren't bleating anymore. Unquote. By the way, for someone whose like second language is English, she is an amazing journalist, um, Pim. So Surin was really enjoying the attention that he was getting from this, but he was drunk. He would get on drugs. He would say all these crazy stories. Then his stories changed to saying that he saw Andy Gill, the owner of the place, having sex with Kirsty. And then he said, no, no, I just saw him change, leave his room for years, as it turned out. And from what I can find, he pointed the finger at Andrew Gill. Um, and he very much deflected from himself. But he really had it out for Andrew Gill, um, I believe. Whether or not that's because, you know, he had some beef with him or in his mind he really did think that Andrew Gill had done something. But I come back to Surin again and again um, because he's the one who was one of the ones to find Kirsty's body. He was one of the ones to hear her screaming. Um, I'm not saying he was doing it because other people saw him on the staircase hearing her screaming, I'm, but I'm not, not saying that, <laughs> um, that he wasn't watching out for someone else who was doing something to Kirsty. I have a lot of thoughts on this. So ultimately, the RA guest house was not to be because of Kirsty's murder and the cast of characters that were calling the guest house home. The guest house cleared out. Andrew Gill couldn't own it anymore because he was in jail. And then I believe he was probably deported from overstaying his visa. Um, Surin's wife, um, Pathapa or whatever, she had to manage it for a while because every guest left. They didn't want to be associated with it. The 
um, journalists and media were constantly around, so no one was checking in. It was pretty much empty. Um, Surin was in jail. All of the other males were in jail by this point, and then they were let out, and obviously they just wanted to get the fuck out of Thailand. So there was nothing to really manage. Now, Panther Pal always said that she believed her husband, Surin, the manager, was innocent. She told the police this for years. Surin is now dead as of 2021, from what I can find and from what Pim wrote. He died a few years after Kirsty's death. Um, her story was that Surin suffered from a back injury um, years before, and this meant that he couldn't rape Kirsty. So she was using the Bill Cosby, you know, Harvey Weinstein defense. She said that he didn't really have sex anymore because of this back injury. Um, so she needs to get real. Um, she then went on to say that she was miserable at the RA guest house um, because when everyone left and it was just her, every night Kirsty's ghost could be heard. Um, and she said no one would stay the night with her there because of the ghost. And since everyone had checked out and there was no money coming in, she had 20 baht left to her name and nothing to live on. So, you know, she's got a lot of like mental problems. I don't know. I think they were pre-existing before Kirsty's death, you know, but I don't know what happened to her, but I do know that Surin is dead. So one day, two weeks after Kirsty's death, Panthapa, Surin's wife, Surin was now in custody. So she, women are quite reliant on the men in these cultures. So she was probably, you know, fucked without him and their income. She called the police and she barricaded herself in a room. And she basically said from the other side of the door to the police that she was going to kill herself unless the police would bring Surin to her. Ultimately, she did not. Um, and police did not bring Surin to her because that's not how the law works. So this is where Pim gets into some um, supernatural stuff, whether or not you believe this. So she talks about how she knew this palm reader who kind of knew people from all over Chiang Mai. And she's just including it in there because she's painted a picture of this cast of characters. So she's bringing this in because, you know, it's another element of it. So she said that this man had previously been to the RA guest house um, a couple of weeks before Kirsty was murdered and he had visited someone there but then one of them had found out that he was a palm reader I think he's actually a westerner this guy um and they were like oh read everyone's palms so all of these guys that were suspects in this were at the guest house by this point but I don't believe Kirsty was at this point so he read the palms of Andrew Gill the owner his girlfriend who is called Mem that's the only reference they ever have I'm presuming she's tired with that name um and he also read the palm of Surin, the manager, and he said, because he's quite a renowned palm reader up there, he said that Andrew Gill's girlfriend, Mam, and Surin, the manager, were both evil. He saw evil in their palms. Um, later on, he would also <laughs> he would also read um, Andrew Gill's one, his palm, and after that, he would say that he never thought anybody else was responsible except Andrew Gill because he also had evil in his palm. Now, the police officers from the region where Kirsty was from in Wales, Difford Powys, I think is how you say it, sorry to the Welsh, um, they, this whole time for 20 years, from 2000 to 2020, were liaising with the Thai authorities. They went there a couple of times, once with Kirsty's mum. 
it was a media circus and they were really just trying to get to the crux of what the hell was going on. And I think that if the police from Wales had handled this from the beginning, which they wouldn't because it didn't happen in Wales, but if they had, they would have had the answers, I reckon, within a week. And now it's been 21 years and I don't think they'll ever have answers because I'm sure they did not look after the DNA results very well. I'm sure it's degraded. Um, but basically it was a delay to get the DNA results back initially um, from all of the suspects that I named earlier. So I'm going back a bit. Pim wrote this very interesting thing about how the DNA results were delayed coming back that were testing all of the foreigners and the people in the guest house, which we've talked about, which ultimately would rule them out. But it this paragraph from her that I'm about to read to you really points at how fucked the police were and their mentality. Um, so we'll talk about it in a minute. So quote, Colonel Prasit Thamdi had to tell us that the results were to be delayed for a few days and then went on to make a baffling and disturbing statement to the Daily News. As he was relaying the three-day delay of the DNA results, Colonel Prasit added that as a matter that as to the matter of Surin's larger than usual sexual organ, it was because he had apparently injected it with olive oil to make it bigger. <laughs> Pim just puts exclamation marks between these paragraph, these statements. She says, you would think the reporter would have followed up this statement with a question like, uh, so please can you tell us what the hell you're on about? But as with much of the local reporting at the time, more questions were raised than answers. So when he's telling people why the DNA results were you know, delayed coming back to that would ultimately exonerate all of these people. He randomly brings up the size of the manager's dick and says that it's big because he injects it with olive oil. A, that is not true. Please do not do that. But why would he bring that up? This this is what she's talking about in the article and she she elaborates on it really well. It's this obsession with sexuality but it's Kirsty's slut and she's got condoms and she's a dirty hoe on one side but then it's this revering of the men if you understand what I mean basically this high up police officer from the start felt that Kirsty was loose and he made references to it a lot and I kind of read into what he said about Surin's member that he's referring to the fact that I don't know. Like, I just can't make sense of it. I don't think he's trying to say that he had sex with Kirsty, but it's just very strange. Pim, quote, a rumour that was published in many local newspapers that Kirsty was put in the downstairs room because it was directly below Andrew Gill's or Surin's rooms. I can't quite remember. I think it may have been Andrew Gill's. And that the owner and manager duo, duo were secretly filming backpackers through a hole in the floorboard. Police combed the guest house for footage, but never found any evidence. And though a local Farang expert said there was some footage online, it never materialised. It was suspected for a few weeks that the two were involved in an underground pornography ring. But again, that rumour slash theory was soon abandoned, unquote. So this is where the rumours have started coming in that Andrew Gill and Surin, the manager, are in on it together. They've been filming people. I mean, who knows? The police did look into it. They didn't find any evidence of that. There was no evidence that ever kind of came up online. Um, I think this is probably just people gossiping and rumours forming. Anyway, Surin was cleared by DNA and so was everyone else, even though... The DNA test has nothing to do with the size of his, his dick, but somehow they worked that into it. The police continued 
um, to test any Caucasians they could come across despite science and the pathologist trying to explain science to them. Um, but then part of me doesn't think they're too mad um, because I think the police had an idea that maybe two people were in on it together. And I don't totally discount that, but we have to go with the the DNA and the DNA is of one person and he is a Southeast Asian male. So years went by. In 2012, Sue Jones, Kirsty's mum, travelled to Chiang Mai with Welsh police officers to publicise a £10,000 reward that she had offered for information, but nothing came of that. I don't know if that's still on offer. I'm sure it probably is just to get answers. The Thailand doesn't have as detailed a DNA database as America or any other Western places. This is a developing country. If you've been there, that's probably the least of their worries. But more and more by this point, they were putting Thai criminals who had been charged with things, their DNA on a DNA database. But no one's ever got a hit for this particular DNA that was found with Kirsty. They've taken DNA samples from prison inmates with certain convictions that they thought could be linked to Kirsty's case. And in 2012, they said that that process was ongoing. In 2013, the Welsh police said they had been finally given permission that they had been asking for for ages to forensically review evidence collected by the Thai officers. They also said that they wished to re-interview key people in the case on their grounds. So they're like, this is a Welsh person and you haven't done the right job. So we want to re-look at all of this evidence. We want to retest the DNA evidence and we want to re-interview on home soil key people in the case who by this point were, a lot of them were back on British soil. In 2013, Detective Superintendent Jones told the BBC, quote, they are British nationals who are now back in the UK and we believe there's value to interview them again. As time has moved on and now they're resident in the UK, they might feel more comfortable and confident sharing information they didn't before. And that's true because there is a death penalty offence for murder in Thailand and they may not have felt like sharing what they knew at the time because they thought that they would somehow have it pinned on them because you've got to think of how corrupt the police are in this part of the world. The Welsh police also stated at the time, quote, police have a DNA profile of the suspect or somebody who helped them. The indications are that it was a person of Southeast Asian origin, unquote. So I like how they've kind of specified of the suspect or somebody that helped them, um, because I think that's very important. And that's kind of where my thinking goes. According to Pim, quote, in January 2002, Wales Difford Powers Police Force revealed the results of their DNA tests, which indicated that while it did not match Narong's, remember the guy who was kidnapped by seemingly the police, the specimen showed remarkable likeness to his DNA and was thought to have belonged to a relative of his, unquote. Now, that was in like 2002, so I'd be interested for them to redo that because genetic genealogy and stuff wasn't what it is today. Um, but if that's true and it would be found to have the same results, it would mean that Narong or someone from his hill tribe, you know, family or distant relatives of his would be the perpetrator, um, but it wasn't him. So Pim ends with, quote, after hearing about the Asian DNA Sorry, um, I'm talking about the Welsh police. Quote, after hearing about the Asian DNA, he opined that he had heard on the night of the murder a foreign man had paid some tuk-tuk driver for their sperm, which he then must have planted on Kirsty's body, unquote. 
<laughs> so these are the, sorry, that's the Thai police saying that. Um, I've just pasted it in the wrong part. So they were ultimate like conspiracy theorists, the Thai police. They could not come to terms with the fact that the a Thai person had done it or a Southeast Asian person. So one of their theories was that a foreigner, a Westerner had paid a tuk-tuk driver to wank into a cup for their sperm to then plant on Kirsty's body instead of just looking at the evidence and, you know, Occam's razor. It's not the easiest answer. That's what people say. It's the one that produces the least amount of questions as a result. And if you look at Kirsty's case in the eye of that, the answer is that the same person who raped her killed her and that it is a Southeast Asian male and they haven't got him yet. Um, and that's kind of what I think. So present day. In The Guardian, they had an article from 2011, and I thought this was an interesting turn, and then again, it went away. So if you remember when Kirsty was um, murdered, all of these men were arrested, and actually, initially, Andrew Gill was charged with murder, and then it was dropped when the DNA test came back. So that was in 2000. Now we're going to 2011, and this article read, quote, Thailand police have charged a man with conspiracy to murder, Kirsty Jones, British embassy officials said today. Andrew Gill, who owned the RE guest house in Chiang Mai, where Miss Jones, 23, was killed on August 10th, has been charged with her rape and conspiracy to murder. The Independent reported, quote, confusion remained about why the police had charged Gill, who was apparently cleared in the early stages of the investigation by DNA tests on blood and hair samples he gave voluntarily, unquote. So Andrew Gill was a again arrested in 2011 and then he was again had charges dropped and you know I don't think at this point he was back I think he was in England because he probably had an idea that this was going to happen again so twice they've charged him and let him go and it there was never cleared up how they rearrested him and charged him because he was cleared in the early stages of DNA testing now my conspiracy mind goes to certain men whose blood types aren't found in their sperm and they're like a random anomaly and it's very rare I was literally thinking today, what if Andrew Gill was one of those people? <laughs> but I don't think that's probably the case. But they've really zoomed back in on Andrew Gill, and that's because Surin for years said that Andrew Gill had done it. Again, they dropped these charges in 2011. Reports in local Thai newspapers claimed that Andrew Gill had been identified as the killer by the guest house's Thai manager, Surin Chanpranay, um, who had been held by police on drugs charges after shortly after the murder. So he was arrested for the drugs found in his apartment in the guest house. And Andrew Gill was in there for his visa overstay. And that's when Surin started to point the finger at him. But Andrew Gill's friends maintained very vehemently that Andrew Gill could not have done it, despite being a violent drunk, according to Pim. Friends of his said to The Guardian, quote, this is unbelievable. There is no way Andy did this. The whole investigation has been a joke from start to finish. I know Andy well and he is just not capable, unquote. And they said that in 2011. Now, I personally don't think Andrew Gill is involved only because, not that I know him on a personal level, but I don't think he would want this attention on the guest house when he's living there, owning it, living there illegally. Um, I That's just a big price to pay for doing something like that. But then again, you know, biology, rapists are rapists, murderers are murderers. So basically the Guardian's Luke Harding wrote something in his article for the Guardian a week after Kirsty's murder. And I want to kind of end on that because it's quite chilling how they talk about how 
they expect an arrest to be made within days. And we're now looking at 21 years later. Quote, as for Kirsty Jones's killer, it seems only a matter of time before he is arrested, convicted and jailed. Forensic tests on hair left at the scene are expected over the next few days to reveal the killer's blood group. And there is nowhere to run to. Two plainclothes detectives have been assigned to keep watch on every suspect. Immigration authorities have also been alerted to stop anyone from leaving. We are confident we will make an arrest in seven to ten days, Mr Thamdi said. For the sake of Kirsty Jones, let us hope so, unquote. And that was 21 years ago in about a week's time. On August 10th, 2020, 20 years to the day Kirsty was murdered, her case was officially closed as the statute of limitations ran out a year ago. Nobody now can be charged with her rape and murder. It is the Thai law and it's how they do it. Um, if convicted during that 20 years, the person would have been punishable by a death penalty or by a very lengthy jail term. But now that's just not going to happen. <sighs> what I think. A lot of lies have been told in this case. People have lied all over the place and if people had just been up front for the sake of this poor young woman, they would have got to, you know, the crux of it. I'm not going to totally blame the Thai police for being, you know, a bit dodgy. I think they really did want to solve it. Um, but they were dealing with people who lied and then ages later came out and said they lied over and over and over again. And they were dealing with quite a motley crew of characters um, who you know, any one of them could have had motives. You know, some people, the way that they acted in this on the face of it looks sketchy, but you've got to think, like I've said before, of things that they had to give up, including Andrew Gill's whole life in Thailand. And that's why I just can't in my heart of hearts think that he would want to bring this attention on his own guest house. And I've seen quite a lot of quotes from his friends that say he couldn't have done it. Normally, I don't agree with things like that and anyone's capable of anything. But in this instance, I can't kind of really put my finger on Andrew Gill. I can't help but think that if they lied about Kirsty being found at 4pm when she was actually found at like 10.30am. What else did people in the guest house lie about? Did Stephen, Trigg and Surin even hear Kirsty screaming? Are they backing up each other's stories and corroborating it so they don't go to jail? How can we trust the fact after everything Surin said later on and all the lies he told, if he even came down the stairs and saw Stephen Trigg that night and then told him, you know, to go back to bed and that someone was in that room? How do we not know that Stephen Trigg wasn't just told what to say and actually Surin was the person in that room with Kirsty? Surin claims to have heard that but he's also the first to find her, the last to hear her screaming. And the DNA is a Southeast Asian male. And I do throw out the DNA evidence because I think it's completely contaminated. That DNA evidence that they relied on from the sarong and from the bed sheets when they had a whole host of other DNA that was literally inside the victim without being gross is so dodgy to me. That DNA on that sarong could have come from a stool owner at a stall at the Chiang Mai night market that sold sarongs. It's too um, convoluted. It's too contaminated. After the initial TV crews walk in, people are touching her stuff. People are touching her toiletries bag. It's just, um, it could have been any one of those people. Uh, to me, the DNA, you just can't use it anymore. Um, 
And if they did hear her screaming, and I have no motivations to suspect Stephen Trigg, um, I don't know enough about him, I find one thing strange which stood out to me, and I, people probably won't agree with me, but I find Kirsty's use of wording strange that Stephen Trigg heard her screaming. He said that she was screaming, leave me alone, leave me alone, get off me, get off me. I found that interesting when I first looked at Kirsty's case like six months ago, and it stood out to me again this time. I know that when you're kind of panicked and adrenaline, you can say weird things and you're not necessarily thinking straight, but why not scream help for someone in the guest house to come? That would get people's attention as opposed to leave me alone, which does kind of sound like, you know, it could be a couple's, a lover's spat or a domestic. What about help, somebody help? Her screams to me and what she was saying, if Stephen Trigg, his memory is right, it seems to me that it sounds like more like she's threatening the person. She didn't want to necessarily get other people involved, but she wanted that person in her room to leave without involving other people. Otherwise, she'd be screaming, help, you know, rape, murder. Of course, we say things when we're scared or adrenaline is going. So I'm not discounting the fact that she was just, you know, making noise because I've done weird stuff. Um, but this all really makes me think that it's someone on the official list of eight and that that DNA is contaminated and wrong. It had to be someone in the guest house. It, it just had to be because there was no one else there and most people were there either out or in their rooms. Why would Kirsty be having a domestic with someone when she didn't know anyone in Chiang Mai? That's one of my big questions. Why would they go back to their rooms when they heard a girl who they knew she was staying alone in Chiang Mai in a single room in this guest house by herself? Why wouldn't they just knock on the door and see what was happening? Why would they think that she was having a domestic with someone when she's clearly not in a relationship with anyone? Just because they found Southeast Asian male DNA doesn't mean to me it wasn't two people. Maybe one person walked in on it and saw the other one and they didn't want to embroil themselves in the legal system in a country that has the death penalty for murder. I would be interested to know what the movements of people were immediately after who were staying there. I know Andrew, I think, was probably deported, lost his business there and everything, um, yeah, I'd just be interested to know when they eventually got the DNA tests and let people go. Did they immediately leave? Um, the passage of time, I think, is really important in this case. And I'm speaking to you if you know someone who was in that guest house or you are one of the people in the guest house. If you heard anything or saw anything, you know, or you want to give an anonymous tip, you can to the Welsh police just send it through on their Crime Stoppers thing that's available. I'll put it on the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com. If you yourself were staying there and you knew something at the time, but 20 years have gone by and now you're older and maybe you've got a daughter, you know, who you can see Kirsty in and you know what her parents would be going through now, send in that. Even if it means that you look like a fool or you look like you held stuff back, People will understand if you explain why. Her family just wants closure. Also, to end on, that one line in the Guardian article about the room being locked with a padlock from the outside is very concerning for me because it never comes up again and Pim never even mentions it. But it was so close to the time that Kirsty was murdered, I think it was probably true. Who's locking the room with a padlock? Who has access to padlocks that, you know, uh, the right size to lock these rooms. And that's why I come back again to 
Andrew Gill and Surin, and they're the two main ones. I know you're probably thinking, yes, but the DNA doesn't match, but you've got to take into consideration how contaminated this crime scene was. I don't even, I don't even think about the DNA in this instance because they've just stuffed it up so much. I tried to find old reviews of the RE guest house. It was the year 2000, but, you know, there was early trip advisors and things like that. Unfortunately, I can't find anything because not long after that, it changed owners and changed names. But if you yourself travelled to Chiang Mai 20 years ago or so and stayed in the RE guest house and you ran into any of these people who lived there or knew any of them, you know, send through your information to unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com and it will be, you know... I can keep you anonymous. There's one with a similar name now in Chiang Mai, but it's not the one. Now, yeah, to me, all of these things point to the fact that there's been a fuck up with DNA. Um, But I do hope the passage of time will help. And I think that the only thing that will help now is someone pointing the finger at someone else. Yeah, so I'm interested to know what you think about this whole case. Um, Yeah, I know it's hard to say who did it because we just don't know enough about these people, whether there was someone who was visiting someone there. Um, I just know that it was someone from that initial group of eight, the men who were in there. It had to be. She returned to the guest house after she had a night out and she was in her room and it would have to be someone who knew that she had that room there. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Visit the website. I'll put up Kirsty's episode page shortly. It's unknownpassagepodcast.com. Become a patron. It links off the website or you can just look for Unknown Passage Podcast on the Patreon app. You can give whatever you want a month and you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode and I will add that to the schedule. Um, One-off donations to the podcast really help at the moment. Um, It's PayPal and it's the email is unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com leave a rating or review if you like the show. Um, yeah, so I will be back next time. I'm not sure if I'm doing the profile now, it will be a multi-parter one, or if I'll be doing one more Patreon location request and then I will, um, be doing the profile. I currently have on my list, um, Jay, Sophie, Kim, Amy, John, Stephanie, Marissa, Eva, Amanda and Aaron um, for (laughs) patron location requests. So bear with me, it can take a few months. Um, But I am up to speed and I do do my best. And yeah, sometimes I put out two episodes a week for you. So, so yeah, I will be back probably on the weekend and I will talk to you then. Okay, bye.